When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Venice. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, hey, great to be back working with you. Well, what are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Beth Parry Met Sally. To be more like Beth, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show and become an official sponsor today. If you're feeling low, the Joe Marler Show will give you things to talk about. If you're feeling down, then the bearded clown will give you things to talk about hello and welcome to our show i'm joe marla and this is tom fordyce joe have i still got food on my face this is the second time i've had to tell you this morning at breakfast with that phyllo pastry croissant thing you ate yeah and it wasn't just like a little crumb in the side of your mouth it was your entire mouth <laughs> and steve didn't point out so i was like why is this a joke that he's i'm not in on so i left it for a little bit but then i was like you're gonna have to deal with that um but luckily you're more civilized after lunch although you do seem a little bit drowsy are you feeling all right tired so tired i can't have you be tired mate can we do this another time Uh, yeah okay i'll put off one of the top restaurant critics in the country because you're feeling a little bit sluggish yeah no, I mean, you don't need to postpone it totally. Just give me 10 minutes because this sofa in here is really comfy. It's quiet because it's a studio. If you pop the lights off on your way out, I'll do 10 minutes. You do some small talk with Joe Rayner and then I'll tap on the glass when I'm good to go. Why Why did we have to go out for lunch anyway before we've cut it quite fine? You rushed me through that as well. Joe, you have already answered your own question by using the phrase out to lunch because that's the name of Jay Rayner's podcast. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. You teed me up. Yeah, big time. A little reminder, if anyone needs it, that you can now grow the show on Apple for a single pound a week. You can get a version of this show without adverts. And these versions, Joe, are extra long, sometimes 20 minutes longer, but still loaded full of the good stuff. You can also do the same on Spotify. Check the link in the episode description. If you are on Apple, look for the button that says Joe. Grady show. Right, let's get Jay in. You've kept him waiting long enough. Our guest today is a restaurant critic, and his name is Jay Rayner. Jay Rayner, thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Is it re- is it restaurant critic or is it restaurant critique or is that completely? Am no, I it's fucked up the word. It's restaurant critic. Critic. No, you got it absolutely right the first time. Critic always has a negative com- connotation to it. Do you not worry always. about that? No, absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I would say that, but there are critics for many, many disciplines, 
and I've done quite a lot of them over the years. I was a theatre critic for a short while. I've reviewed books. Uh, I've occasionally written about film. There are two points of view, which is that by the really protective people who are the ones who make the stuff, who go, well, how dare you hold hold forth on what we do when you don't do it? And then there's the other view, which is we are the consumers. There's a brilliant line by a colleague and friend of mine, Mark Kermode, who's a great film critic. Um, Mark says, I don't make films, but I do watch them. And in the same way, I don't make dinner, but I do eat it. Either you think it's important to know what it's like to be the diner, or you don't. In other words, either you're Gordon Ramsay and you don't like critics, or you're the 150 to 1 million people who read my column on a Sunday, Gordon. See, unwittingly, Joe, you have stumbled on a previous dynamic between me and Joe in that Joe still is a obviously professional player. I am a former sports writer. And in some ways, Joe, you could rehash those same arguments in that some professional sports people would look at the writers and go, what do you know? You've never done it. Oh, yeah. When you put it like that, yeah, it's very similar. Although the point is, you wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for the people who paid the ticket price to go through the turnstile or the pay-per-view or whatever to watch you do the thing you do. And then you have the right to professional writers to hold forth on what you do for a living. So, Jay, are you suggesting that I should compliment Tom and thank him for my career? No, I actually think you should ignore him. <laughs> um, I, I'm, strong, I'm strongly of the view that nobody who is on the receiving end of professional criticism, and that doesn't mean, the word criticism has a negative connotation, but a view of it should ignore it. And I have a very strong view of reviews, which is you have to take them with a pinch of salt, because if you accept the glowing ones as proof that you are brilliant, you also have to accept all the negativity that comes on the other side. I only pay attention to them on a commercial basis. In other words, if someone writes a review and it's very positive, is this going to be good for business? If someone writes a negative one, is it going to be bad for business? I try not to let it get in the way of what I actually do. What is the worst blowback you have had from a chef or restaurant owner after a review, Jane? Oh, the worst blowback. Well, I suppose it goes to... You know, if there's such a thing as a famous restaurant review, I had one, which was I went off to Paris to review a Michelin three star. Uh, and I went there because I hadn't done one in a very long time. And I thought, well, that'd be good. I'll go to one of those great Parisian gastro palaces and eat some fabulous food and laugh at rich people. And we'll all come away quite a bit wiser. And it was the uh, Le Sanc at the Georges Sanc Hotel. And it was one of the worst meals I've ever had. Oh. Uh, it was extraordinarily bad. It started with the waiters giving the menu with no prices to the woman who was with me, who was the one who booked the table, and went downhill from there. And the, the food was hackneyed and old-fashioned and grim and dark and sticky and strange. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And then we paid the 600-euro bill. <sighs> and I knew as I walked down the steps that I was going to write what I believe we call an evisceration. I was going to tear them a new one. <laughs> um, the kickback from... The entire French nation was pretty full on. Yeah. Um, and it has to be said that the, the hotel sort of dealt with it. Uh, they called it, uh, this is just classic. <laughs> Anybody who knows anything about me will know how hilarious this is. This is just classic Brexit. <laughs> Brexiteer <laughs> journalism. Um, and rich bashing. I thought, well, I've, ne I've never really been that keen on Brexit. If anybody's read what I've written, I'm a diehard, headbanging Remainer. And as I went there to pay the 600 euro bill, I think it's a bit tough calling me a rich basher. But so <laughs> the whole of France hated me. That said, the rest of the world loved me. So I put that down as a win. 
What was the single best insult that you received on social media? There would always be things like, you know, you're ignorant, you know nothing, um, you have the palate of a dustbin, that sort of stuff. I would argue that dustbins have got uh, would have reasonable palates because they sit. They, they well, the amount of shit that goes in there, like they'll get loads of good shit that goes in there as well. Half eaten good shit, I know. But if you're a dustbin, that's pretty good. Yeah, except there's only one issue with that, which is that dustbins aren't sentient. But apart from that, it's a really good. Oh, you, that's you the should, idea. You yeah, that we riff, know about. You should riff on that idea, Joe. That is the only issue. You you said that that restaurant didn't have any prices. No, I only thought- the menu menus given to the lady. Because, of course, outside it was 2017, but in the restaurant it was 1963. It was the most classic piece of old-fashioned French, good God, does this still go on, chauvinism. Fuck me, no wonder you tore him a new arsehole from the off then. That was, that was how it started, and it went downhill from there. I, but I just always thought if there was no price on a menu, that means it's, it's nice. Like it's meant to be well, if there's absolutely decent. no price on a menu then that means it's free i mean <laughs> somebody should be looking at a price on a menu i have never been to a restaurant where nobody got the menu with prices on. what about the menus that have only numbers and don't actually put the uh, currency on them they just put 2.5 i agree it's an affectation it's an annoying affectation but it's not that confusing i think if someone I was... goes i don't know if it's lira <laughs> well lira sort of stopped you know in 2002 when the euro came. I think I would still have a strong argument for refusing to pay in the currency of the country. I think you should try that. Well, I'd, I'd suggest we did it straight away, but we have, Jay, just returned, Joe and I, from lunch. Yeah, I thought it was lovely. Yeah, I've, right. I've, you, you, you were moaning that you were going to be a little bit sloppy and sleepy and... Sluggish was the word sluggish. I used. Sluggish. Yeah. Lots, lots of sluggish. Where did you boys go? Just next door, called a restaurant called Deshoom. Deshoom is great. Deshoom is actually the answer I give when people say, have you ever got a review wrong? Oh. I reviewed the very first Deshoom, which was on St. Martin's Lane. I wasn't totally down on it. I just said, this is a mess. It doesn't know what it wants to be. I think it, I said, it feels like it's trying to limber up to roll out into a group of restaurants because then there was only one. Some of the food simply doesn't work and it doesn't have an identity. Oh, well, I was totally wrong. Nasty. Nasty. I I never claimed to be nice. Nasty. Um, I was wrong. But in my defence, the guys who run Dishoom have since said to me that that review actually focused them on things they weren't getting right and that they changed a lot of what they were doing. Now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that any chef or restaurateur read a review of mine and immediately change what they're doing. But with Dishoom, that's apparently what happened. And I'm now um, a massive fan. I've regularly got takeaways from there because they are available via uh, an app that I won't name. Um, <laughs> and I think their bacon naan is a thing of beauty. Hang on a minute. It's there a was bre- a bacon naan? It's a breakfast item, Joe. Oh, fuck's sake. I've got to go back. Let's give him a bell. Let's pop back. Okay. Anyway, restaurant critic, by definition, you get paid to go and eat food at lovely restaurants, sometimes poor shit restaurants, but more often than not, lovely restaurants. That, to me, sounds like a dream job. Yeah, but that's not my job. Uh, Please explain. That's not my job. The short version is it's the writing I get paid for, the eating I do for free. Uh, I am a writer, first, second, third, and ninth. Long before I became a restaurant critic, I was a general journalist who covered literally everything apart from sport. So between us, we've got it all covered. Yeah, yeah. It, we, we literally. I mean, I, you name it, you ask me, I've done it. Yeah. And when you are reviewing restaurants, and I'm approaching this as someone who used to write more for a living than I do now, I found myself wondering, Jane, a number of things. Number one, how do you take notes? It's interesting. I used to take a lot of notes. 
I don't very much anymore, partly because the resource that you need is available to you very quickly. I have a phone and I photograph the me- The first thing I do is I photograph the menu. Uh, I photograph every dish, although that's a, uh, for two reasons. Partly it's an aid memoir, but it also feeds the socials. So on Sunday mornings, when my review comes out, I post my pictures of what I had. And I think that's kind of a useful addition to what's what's there. Quite a while ago, came to the conclusion that if I couldn't remember what was on a dish, that was because the dish was literally unmemorable. And that was enough for you to write about. So I've got the menu description because I've got the menu. We, we, we did that. We, we did that in Dishoom. I thought, I fucking knew I should have taken pictures of dishes. Some of them look nice, except actually what those crispy things at the start? Papadums. No. Uh, <laughs> it was okra. Okra. Oh, What's right. That? Deep fried uh, green things. Yes, yeah. uh, deep fried green things. Okay. Yeah, uh, they looked a little bit messy for my liking. If I was, if I was being completely, Mo- most food does look messy. Almost all good food is brown, hmm. and that's not a bad thing. Oh, I'm just trying to think of Tom. Do you remember what you had? Yeah, I had the matzo paneer. Do you remember the description, Tom? No. Okay, Jay. See if you can uh, see what you think about this description. So you had a mata matzo paneer. A steadfast, humble, and delicious vegetarian curry. Beloved of Bombay families. What? That sentence doesn't make sense. That's probably why I didn't order it. Can you read that to me again? Yeah. In your biggest biggest grown-up back-of-the-room voice. A steadfast, humble, and delicious vegetarian curry. I'm a bit disappointed by that. Actually, you can stop that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, because that that is... <laughs> I think he had. That's massively overwritten for many languages. Because they're already... If you have to tell your punters, that the food they might be about to order is delicious, you're overcompensating like mad. And what, what and I, I, that's a bit steadfast odd. about your food? What does, what's the definition of steadfast? Well, it's reliable and it's always going to be there. It's not a great sell, is it? Is it <laughs> and <laughs> I, humble. I, You've got humble fruit. Oh, they're well, not going to shout I, I can about kind themselves. of get humble, but that's the whole point of Dishoom, which is this is the food of Mumbai. It's, the, it's not the grand food of the hotels of India. There's a whole other restaurant tradition, which we have a lot of in London, which it comes out of the hotel tradition. This is the domestic food. But I'm a little surprised at that because that is a bit overwritten. What's your one, Jay? Shall, oh. I, shall I read out yours? Well, yes. Can you, I can you remember reading what you had? so fucking much? Can I remember what I had? Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was from the Ruby Murray section. Yeah. And it was a chicken ruby. Yeah, very good. And what did you have it with, Joe? I had I had rice and I had a cheese naan, and there was this really nice green sauce at the start yeah. that I liked. And then I ate your naan, and I <laughs> ate everyone else. Oh, what about that broccoli dish? What was that one? That was really nice. sweet. I like that one and the crunch. Anyway, description, please. Tender chicken and a rich, silky makani sauce, a good and proper curry, redolent with spice and flavour. Redolent. Redolent. (laughs) Yes! Sorry. Jay, you don't understand. He's been waiting at least two years to pick me up on my pronunciation and my English. What was it? Redolent. Yeah. Redolent, Tom. Obviously, it was redolent. So you, you would assess... If I was going for the first time... Look, I go into a restaurant... I've got to write 1,100 words, which, as Tom knows, is not a small amount. That's, that's a proper length. I try, before I go in, to work out what the story is. Because, really, you're writing about a table, a chair, a plate of food, and you've got to find another way into this. So I will, before I go, I'll be online. I'll be looking at the, you know, as much information as I can possibly find about the restaurant and see if I can work out what the story would be. 
so that by the time I arrive, I've already read that menu. That menu uh, would actually have given me a lot to write about. But the, but the bait and switch would be, but actually, they're overselling this. They don't need to throw language at the page like this because the food's great. What is the ideal sort of steer on a turnaround between ordering your dish and it coming? If if it coming within a minute means they've just ladled it out of a pot, if coming in an hour means you're so hungry you're crying? You see, it's actually quite a complicated business. If you go out with a partner, should either of you gentlemen have one, um, you probably would like a longer meal in the evening than you might if you two go out for lunch together and the one of the one of the skills of front of house is to work out how long you want to be there. And one of the things that irritates my wife and I is if we go out for dinner and they're knocking it at us every seven minutes. And you think, well, I sat down and we've only been here 55 minutes. And, oh, look, there's a bill for £130. Should we go home? That's really annoying. So it, it, there are other occasions when it can you, you want it to be quick. And then there are some where you want it to take five hours. And you want that event. So it's, it, there is no cast iron rule. It depends on what sort of a restaurant it is. What else should Joe and I be looking out for is, as we put together our reviews then? Jay, what are the little signs and signals? All right, the very first thing is, when you walk through the door, does the person on the desk look at you? Or are they looking at their computer? Have they got into a point where they're controlling their connection with you? What you want is the moment you walk through the door, that person to look at you. Smile even, that'd be nice. There's no mucking around. They either give you a table if you haven't got a booking or find your booking. Take you a table and immediately give you menus, offer you a drink. There is The worst sign is that sluggishness at the front desk. They take you to the table. You're sitting there. You're waiting for someone to bring you a menu. You're waiting for someone to just offer you a glass of water. All of that should happen quickly. Well, that sounds so basic that you, you, you want to greet You'd someone think, wouldn't you? that is willing to experience your food and then part with money for a service that you're providing the basics is let's make eye contact and say hello and yet it's so taken for granted these days that you're just in and out in and out in and out what's the experience one thing that i have to say and i want to say now being front of house is a really difficult job and historically in this country it has not been rewarded well so the last thing I want to come across as is a twat who sounds entitled and ex- assumes that rose petals should be thrown in front of my feet the moment I walk through the We door. already have um, one of them yeah, as I'm, a co-host. Thank you, John. I, know. No um, I know how hard that job is, and I don't think we respect it enough in this country in the way they do, say, in France or Spain or Italy. That said, there are ways of doing it well, and there are ways of not doing it well. Just trying to go back to our, our meal there. We did. We were greeted um and then they got someone else they said just wait here for a second or my colleague's going to come over and they got someone specifically to then take us up to the table that was quite a nice touch i felt welcome the water joe was no more than 40 seconds after we'd sat down oh they're a class operation in dishim i mean they really are they're very very smart even if they are slightly overwriting their menus at the moment (laughs) if they hear this small small critique but um what else what about this are we looking for the smell are we looking for the atmosphere is that something that you judge Uh, what i always say is i'm not a food critic i am a restaurant critic i'm telling you how much pleasure your money will buy you most restaurants when we walk past them we're walking past a room that we want to be in the uh, the point of a restaurant is you go in there i mean there are some we go to because we're hungry we need to eat we're on the road or whatever but generally if we choose to let's eat out tonight or let's go out for lunch you want to go into a room that can close the door on life. 
and stop the world for two or three hours. There are lots of different ways that that can happen. Some of them are the big bustling brasserie. Dishoom is a, is a bustling space, um, and they've done a lot on the decor, particularly we're in King's Cross, and it, it that's a, a breeze block unit that they have modelled in their own style. Um, some are going to be a little more, what should we say, a sophisticated and elegant, you know, a bit more carpeting, it's a, the tinkle of glass, and it'll be relaxing. Um, again, it's, it, it's, it's about what kind of atmosphere you're looking for, what you want out of it, and what your expectation is in relation to the food that they're serving and the price point. That also plays, uh, plays a part. Joe, what's the greatest restaurant you've ever been to? Or, oh, I don't know if this is a slightly different question based on what Jay has just told us, the greatest meal you've had. Fuck. The greatest restaurant I've ever been to. There was a restaurant in Thailand, and I don't know its name, which is poor, but the atmosphere, the lighting. Where was it located, Joe? I want to say Phuket, but I think I'm saying it wrong. But I mean, was it on the beach? Was it? It was near the beach, Near the beach, so near the the beach. We were on like a... Seafood? There was seafood. We were on like a decking, so it was out. The atmosphere was there. It wasn't too fucking noisy, but it wasn't too quiet that you felt like you were in other people's conversations. And I ordered a, it was a Massaman curry and the meat that came with it. I think it, I want to say it was lamb and it just dissolved in my mouth. And I remember that whole experience where we were with my wife. That's, that's one that springs to mind, Tom. What about you? See, I find it easier to think about a meal that made me really happy rather than a particular restaurant. And the food won't make sense if I describe the food to you, but if I, Describe the circumstances, maybe it will. So many years ago when I was backpacking around New Zealand, I had a camper van which was shit in that it had no facilities. It was just a place where you could drive and later sleep. Right. You couldn't cook. You couldn't put stuff in the fridge. Sounds like a car. It was like a big car. And also because I was skinned, I wasn't parking up in campsites. You just park up middle of nowhere. So you'd wake up very early and generally very hungry. And I think we were in north island and there was one cafe that was open it was about seven in the morning and i was so hungry i was really cold really hungry and i've gone in there and the woman has clearly thought that i'm some sort of son of the land that i need feeding up and she's brought me a massive silver trough and in it are literally 10 weetabix and then she brings me this massive <laughs> massive hell. industrial sized silver jug of hot milk that feels like it's just been squeezed out of an udder and she pours it on. And at that point, I was so cold and so hungry that 10 Weetabix in a silver trough was unbelievable. What you described there, both of you, actually, is that restaurants are an emotional thing. We want them to be functional. We want to think, well, if we go to this place where they charge £25 for a starter of it, and it's crystal glass and all of that, and it's on that particular street in that particular town, it must be fabulous. Well, it, it might have virtues, but that's not necessarily going to define what is the great experience for you. For you, it's a, it's a terrine of 10 Weetabix <laughs> at 7 in the morning when you're freezing and feeling maybe a long way from home. Yeah. And for you, it was somewhere in Thailand on the beach. And when people ask me that question, and they ask me all the time, I find it a very hard one to answer because I say it's all about emotion and what you were looking for. I mean, sometimes I point to a place called the Company Shed on West Mercy in Essex, which is a seafood shack. You practically have to take your own chair, but by God, the seafood is good and cheap, and you have to queue for it. And it's not glamorous, but it is really, really good. So these ideas of what a restaurant should be uh, are sometimes confounded by our own emotional responses to them. 
I, I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that we've got one of the top restaurant critics in the world in our studio <laughs> and your fucking best restaurant food story was 10 Weetabix and hot milk. I'm here for it. Just, just, just to say, while you carry on in this midlife crisis of a male relationship you're clearly working through, I just want to say I am here for Tom's 10 Weetabix. You've travelled all over the world. Ridiculous. Jay, you, you said um, lots of people ask you about the best restaurants that you've gone to. Mm. And you spoke at, what was it? The sh- what was it? Company, Company Shed Company is Shed. one that I often point to. I, I mean, I, I do it in an almost performative way because I'm making the point, although it is fantastic, I want to make the point that it's not about some fabulous three Michelin-starred gastro palace. Although it's not about that, as you've just it can described. Be. It can be. The f- what are the top ones All right, the that fat you duck. can go? Heston oh. Blumenthal's Fat Duck, circa 2005, when he was right on the edge of inventing his style of food and it was funny and it was delicious and it was clever and it was joyous so that's one um there's a place in new york jean georges which is the flagship restaurant of jean georges von one of these great global chefs he has restaurants all over like one in las vegas he's got one in monaco and whatever and every time i've gone to one of his diffusion lines they've always been shit but this one in new york is like eating at altitude the food is bright and sharp and exciting um and it makes you feel like you are a master of the universe right they were the best restaurants that you've been to but i want to know what the worst ones you've been to are so i'll ask you that after this little break Hey, Mark, what is up with your bad self? Well, hey, Simon, what is up with your bad self? Well, as it turns out, lots is up. Like, actually, what? Like a whole new podcast. They thought we were going away, but we're back. Biggerer and betterer and larger and more is more. And it's going to have reviews of... Big films, small films, weird films, new films... And... And television. Kermit and Mayo's Take. Follow now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. What about some disaster ones that stick out for you that you go, well, fuck? I, I mean, I'll give a more general response to that. I published a book in 2007 called The Man Who Ate the World, and it was a journey through seven of the world's big cities as they emerged into a luxe economy. And it, it, the idea was I was going in search of my perfect meal. It started in the gastronomic capital of America, which is, of course, Las Vegas. Um, So I ate my way around this emerging restaurant sector in Las Vegas, which has now become massive business. And from Las Vegas, I went to Moscow and Moscow to Dubai. You see how this sort of works out and Dubai to New York, London, Paris. And when I got to Paris, I decided to do the high end supersize me. So in supersize me, Morgan Spurlock ate McDonald's every day for a month to see what impact would have in his body. The high end version is to eat in a Michelin three star every day for a week and see what impact it has on your whole sense of capacity to understand the world. But what that really did was distinguish how much of it is just crap and flummery and how much of it is exciting. There was Most of them were tedious. And then on day five, I found myself in a restaurant called Lestrance, which was a tiny little French three-star, which was fabulous. But before that, I had gone to of a guy called Guy Savoie, and I got to Pierre Gagnier and uh, Le Grand Vefort, and th- these restaurants that were meant to be extraordinary. 
and the cumulative effect was i think this might all be a con and since then, I have very much kept away from three stars. In fact, when I went back to Le Sanc, that was the first time I'd done it in over a decade. And funny enough, next week is the first time I'm going to one in five years. I happen to be, I'll be in the south of France. I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm going to rather a, a, a famous one. I'm not going to say which one it is. But I've stayed away because I became less convinced by that very high level dining where, where people go around the world collecting Michelin stars and sniffing napkins. Just picturing you going, oh, can I have a napkin, please? Just go, I can sniff it. And It's not and me that would do it. that, but there are people like that. <laughs> they're, they're sort of, you know, they, they they run websites where they give their own scores out of 20 for each dish. And they say, the cooking on this piece of chicken was correct. Correct. You think, it's a dangerous word, isn't it? Oh, God, don't make me. You're, you're such a well-known character and figure now. Do you go disguised? How do you do these? Are they planned... I book under a pseudonym. They do not know I'm coming. And restaurants are like theatre. As in, when you go to see a play, by the time they open, there is next to nothing they can do about the script, the actors, the direction, the lighting, the comfort of the seats. It's all sorted. And it, by the same token, when I walk through the door, there's nothing they can do. They can't get new ingredients. They can't get new staff. They can't get new recipes. They can't get a new menu. They can only give me what they've got. Um, they, they can, kiss your ass more. Let's say that you've you've gone in there as let's say I'm horrible Ray Jana. <laughs> I'm horrible. You used, Tom. you used the pseudonym Ray Jana, and you're better than that. You're much better than that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you'd like to do a pickup after I've left, in which you come up with a much better pseudonym, I won't judge you. What else have you used, by the way? Because pseudonyms are actually quite hard. Aren't okay, they? for a long while, I used the name of a fictional restaurant critic who appeared in a novel of mine. Now I'm afraid it's really, really boring. I just book under the name of the person I'm going with. Yeah. Ah, that was the other question. So do you go with someone. I have friends. <laughs> I know. I know some of your listeners will find that startling, but I do have friends. So yeah, I need two of us go. Sometimes more than two, not often, but sometimes more than two. They are given instructions, and those who come with me on a regular basis understand this. Um, I love them dearly. I don't go out with anybody I don't like, obviously. Um, but I am not interested in their opinion at all because i am the one writing the review i mean if there's but some... what a joy to go out with no, 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 no. <laughs> we, we've got lots to talk about i think i think a table in a, in a restaurant is the perfect place for disclosure if you want to get the skinny on what's going on in someone's life take them out for dinner give them a glass hunker down and start talking you will find stuff out i'm i'm i love my time at the table with my mates do you do the full shebang like the oh yeah do you get different wines appropriate wines no. for each meal do you get pissed as a fart or do you make sure you get stay clear-headed no i don't get completely blotto there are stories of other so-called restaurant critics who've had to phone the restaurant the next day to ask them what they had that ain't me i mean it would seem a, a, a massively self-sabotaging thing to do as a journalist to get so off your tits that you can't actually remember what you had and this is going to sound really precious i am absolutely aware how beautiful a job mine appears to be and is you know honestly it's a fantastic job you will have to prize my cold dead fingers off this job um i'm all for bringing young people on but they can wait their fucking turn um so i'm aware of just how great a job it is and one of my mottos and i apply it to the execution of the job and the spend you know a very simple motto don't take the piss so who pays for your meal do you pay for your meal? Is the I, person you're writing for paying for your meal? 
Uh, it's a well in a sequence, combination. I pay on my Avios uh, credit card. Well played. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then I will eventually, after about a couple of months of, of building them up, will charge that back to the paper. On the whole, I will generally charge the entirety of the meal unless I feel we started having more fun than was necessarily required for a restaurant review. If another bottle of wine happened, you know, I won't be charging that back. If I think we've started to take the piss, <laughs> then I'll, I'll pay for that myself. So your policy is to not take the piss, but there must must have been a moment where you've gone, oh... Yeah, three weeks ago. This one's I, a bit... This one's a bit... My uh, my review that's coming out on Sunday as we speak, which will probably be slightly in the past when, when this is released, um, is a, of a restaurant called Nomad. And I actually say in the review, when I look at the bill and wince at the thought of putting the expenses claim through, I know I'm in trouble. <sighs> the bill for two was £310. <laughs> uh, and that wasn't for anything... I mean, it, it, one bottle of wine and three courses. There was recently um, this guy, Salt Bay. The old... Uh, sprinkling his salt. Can't I described get my head his, around it. Can't I, get my head around it. I described it. his salt sprinkling gesture as his arm looking like a bare naked uh, Rod Hull's emu <laughs> vomiting down his neck. We'll come back to that. So he, for anybody who doesn't know what Salt Bay is about, he has these enormously expensive steakhouses where the steaks are wrapped in gold leaf and sold at £1,400. And everybody applauds for this ridiculous man who How comes in. How the fuck is that even allowed? Right. Uh, he, he, he opened one in Knightsbridge, not just across the road from the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. Two of my colleagues in the business managed to convince their editors to cough up 500 quid to do the bargain basement Salt Bay thing. And I thought, well, one... The observer's not going to cough for that. And two, I'm not going to give him the pleasure. So what I did was I went and got a kebab from Kebab Kid in Parsons Green, which is a brilliant kebab shop. And I took a picnic table and a gingham tablecloth and I put it out in front of Salt Bay's restaurant and I ate my kebab there. It basically, it's a review of Kebab Kid, but I've eaten it outside Salt Bay so I can talk about that. That's fucking brilliant. Yeah, That's isn't absolute, it? Absolutely. That's am I troll, expense, trolling of the highest order. Am I, am I bill, uh, the, the bill that I submitted for that one, because I did, you know, get a few kebabs with a mate, was 25 quid. So, Jay, do you ever get to the point where you think, fuck it, I just want egg on toast? Oh, yeah. Well, not, no, I don't get to that point. But, you know, one of the great things about food is you do have to eat it at least twice a day. I had cheese on toast for lunch. It was terrific, thank you. Yeah, but was it just cheese on toast? No, of course was not. It, was it, was it, All right, was it so, Welsh rabbit? No, it wasn't no? Welsh rabbit, but I'm, I mean, I'm a strong believer that cheese on toast is one of those things that you can indulge yourself in very, very quickly. So it happens that it was sourdough, a good sourdough from a, from a local baker. The cheese was bog-standard Cathedral City. And if Ooh, uh, now I've said that, if you'd like to sponsor my podcast, just get in touch. I use so much of it. Um, bacon. Then some bacon on the top. And then I was rooting around in the cupboard and found one of those spice rubs that you'd use for steaks, which was, they're all the same. They're basically paprika, garlic powder, salt, pepper. Throw a bit of that across cheese on toast. Make sure it's properly grilled. Are you toasting the the, the bread before you put the cheese on top? You do need to put the bread through the toaster briefly so that you haven't got you know it's not soggy underneath because you can't turn it over can you so you toast it briefly and then you put it under under the grill the issue i find with cheese on toast joe is in the grill in our oven it, the natural setup of the grill is a little bit close to the element that's what you want is it yeah, yeah you yeah. need it you, you need, need it fast and hot and just just before burning yeah just so you get that little oh mate 
You're mental. What's the matter with you? So you don't like a little bit of colour to it? And the bacon is going on top of this, Jay, is it? Well, it's chopped up and scattered. You know, scatter, I like scatter because it sounds like with a, with a spice mix, and just, yeah. yeah, and thrust it under the grill, and you know, fire it up. I, I, one of my, um, I do actually have a taste for burnt toast. A taste for burnt toast. I like burnt toast. How burnt? Oh yeah. What burnt burnt? Well, sometimes. Properly. No. no, I do. I like burnt toast, and I think one of the great joys of getting older is the things you no longer have to apologise for. So I don't like beer, never like beer, just not a beer drinker, like wine. I'm 55, and if you want to look at me, you know, with a kind of cocked eyebrow and say, fuck off, uh, I like burnt toast. Um, I don't really want to go clubbing. Um, I never want to see a production of Hamlet again as long as I live. Am I looking in a mirror? (laughs) (laughs) You love Hamlet, come on. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by the following. Thirsty Kirsty Jane, the laptop Joe Dell, you don't need a nickname when your surname is Crapper. It's Carl Crapper. The Tank D. Sherman. Darren Greenfields of Athenroy. Matt Ozzy Osbourne. Tom the Bomb Ryan. The Emerald, Jade Ingram. No ifs, no buts, it's Nicky Butterworth. We wish you a Perry Coulson. Rupert the Bear Ellingham. And the Sheldonator, John Sheldrake. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show. Become an official sponsor and grow the show today. You assured us earlier that you do have friends. Yes, um, yes, I do have And them. I will take your word for that. Dear friends who but love me. surely they must shit themselves going, hey, Jay, do you, what, what was your wife's name? Pat. Jay and Pat, do you fancy coming around for dinner? You raise an interesting point. They surely never invite you. Yeah, they never invite us. <laughs> what we have is two or three sets of very close friends, sort of the, the family. So my, my, my kids are now... 18 and 22 and those small children are all early 20s or whatever and instead of it being would you like to come to a dinner party it's we're cooking you're coming so we we cook up a load of stuff for each other we actually we our big thing is in at six out by 8 30 brilliant what is the shittest thing you eat regularly and when i say shittest i mean the thing that most people would look down their snouts at and go mm. oh i hate to admit this because for years, I looked down my rather large snout at my wife and her love for pot noodles until we got to the point there was nothing in the cupboards. Neither of us could be fucked to go out and get some. The kids had been up all night, were shattered. We're like, oh, God, but we're so hungry. Couldn't be bothered to order a takeaway. And Day somehow persuaded me to try a pot noodle, so which I did. And it was, I wouldn't say delicious. <laughs> It was just a damn sight better than I thought it was going to be. Um, so then I felt really riddled with guilt after that and looked down my own nose at myself, if you can do that. Uh, what what other things do people think that's weird that I adore? I love ice creams, but specifically orange ice lollies. And I could go through eight or nine in one sitting. They're just so delicious, but that's just like frozen drink anyway so it doesn't matter so nothing crazy like that they're, they're the sort of things i like what about yourself firstly i have an absolute refusal to believe in uh, guilty secrets 
I'm, I'm not going to be guilty about anything. Guilty food. People say, what's your guilty food secret? I say, I have none. I'm not guilty about it. Um, I really love pork scratchings. Oh, um, a hairy one. Oh, look, if that's the way they came out, then fine. If there's oh, a nipple, I then fine. Fucking love pork scratchings. Pork scratchings, they're great. Oh. And, um, you know, one of the brilliant things that if you're trying to avoid the carbs, you can have pork scratchings, the perfect dietary <laughs> su- uh, supplement. It's a protein snack, <sighs> it's pure skin. <laughs> Lots of fat, lots of skin. Perfect. No carbs. So you said there's no shame and no guilt, Jay. I'm going to tell you what my guilty pleasure is. Oh, no. Oh, what's that face? I'm worried. (laughs) So I like, and my friends know this, and uh, I've done this at their houses, and they all hate me for it, is to go to the cupboard where the cereal is, stick my hand in the bag of cereal, and just eat some dry cereal while walking around the house. You do this in other people's houses. That is fucking disgusting, I told Tom. You, yeah. t- Jay says there's no shame in he's been. No, there's wrong. no shame. There is shame. No, there's, in a, there's no shame in, in, in what you eat. There is shame in having appalling <laughs> manners. <laughs> Can I come round for a cup of tea and a handful of whatever cereal you've got in the cupboard? You're not coming around my house ever. Says the man who ate nine packets of skips in bed one night. It was ten. It was ten, <laughs> and what? it was quavers. 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 Fine. A fine cornstarch snack, if ever there was. I got a little bit peckish in bed. It was after a game. Uh, I had a couple of Guinnesses. I was still wired from all the caffeine and that, so I was up watching Netflix. Daisy was in bed next to me, and I've got this Guinness poured into a glass, like resting on my belly. And uh, she was half asleep, half thing. So you're right, you're not going to fall asleep like that. And I was like, no, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. I'll be you did though, didn't you? So I had polished off that Guinness and I was still quite thirsty and then got a little bit peckish. And then I went downstairs, got a big bag of those uh, Dorito Chili Heat Heatwave flavour. Got another Guinness, came back up. It was the giant bag, polished that one off, finished off the, the Guinness and Daisy woke up the next morning about half seven, eight o'clock. I was still in exactly the same position, sat bolt upright, <laughs> hand on gut, empty crisp packet there. Just, <laughs> she was like, you are a disgrace. This has to stop. You cannot keep eating crisps in our marital bed. And I went, can I eat in the bed downstairs? She went, yes. And that is now your bed. <laughs> so you've got your own podcast. I have. Out to lunch with Jay Rayner. Yeah. We go to restaurants. Um, they have to be ones that I like. I mean, I know it sounds like a bloody obvious thing to say, but they have to be ones I like and know. Don't take a punt. It has to be ones with a that I've already probably reviewed well, um, and therefore it's fine for me to return. And who's been some of your favourite guests that you've had on? Guy Garvey of Elbow was fantastic. And where uh, did you eat? Uh, St. John which is the nose-to-tail sort of temple. And the moment I thought, well, this is going to be good, but I said to him, uh, look, they've got lamb's brains on the menu. Do you want to try those? He went, never have. I'm in. Um, and we really went for it. He was great. Mel C of the Spice Girls took me by surprise. She was well up for dessert. And you think they're all going to be skinny, sort of don't eat anything apart from dry Weetabix, not even the milk. Unbelievable. <laughs> I know, I know. And it's something, you know, they relax and they tell you things. I really like a guest who's had a bit of therapy. I find that brilliant because they've they've tended to have a language of disclosure. Richard E. Grant was brilliant for that, the actor. Um, and Grayson Perry, the, the, the potter. But they, they, they tend to, you know, open up to you if you feed them the good stuff. 
I was just trying to think of whether there was a time we asked you earlier whether you get pissed as a fart when you there are you, there are have times. you got a little bit more carried away when it comes to the podcast? Yeah. I mean, again, so I'm, I'm not embarrassed about this. We the, the restaurants compass the meals. I mean, you know, we're we're getting quite chunky numbers these days, yeah. and so they do. But I I always try and control the wine list. So Jamie Dornan, who is a brilliant guy, I like him very very much, loves his. I think it was his Burgundies. So I very carefully took hold of the of the wine list and chose for him because <laughs> you I'll know be, be a, a huge international drink, film star with a wine list that could end really badly <laughs> nice james may i think was a bit disappointed in me actually disappointed in you yeah because uh i think but not keeping up with him not keeping up with him uh, yeah joe when you have gone into a restaurant sometimes how much attention do you pay not just to the taste of the food but the way it looks on the plate in front of you are you bothered yeah i am yeah, you don't want it. You can't be like shit and sugar. It's got to be dressed up a little bit. It's quite hard in in the places I do go to. Mainly the Six Bells, traditional pub around the corner, local. Had the same menu for the last twenty years. Lovely pool special. That's what you're doing. It's you know basically garlic bread, but it's got special ingredients that I won't reveal. Or it is microwave mules marinara. Um, but their go tos. You can't really dress that up more than what it is but i guess it is quite important as a as a critic to be like it's got to look decent hasn't it it can't just up, be about the taste up to a point i would take taste over presentation every single time i've been served beautiful looking plates of food you don't know whether to eat them or hang them on the wall but they've not really tasted it much my view all great food is brown is one i i still hold to and one of the interesting things that's happened over the past 10 years or so i think is a growing understanding that food doesn't necessarily have to be gorgeously pretty. You can arrange great ingredients on a plate and they can be a bit of a pile um, and it will still be appetizing. One of the other things that's happened is the rise of small plates and sharing plates. And if you think of, I mean, I can get into the whole history of this, but if you think of the, the main course defined by the classical french kitchen from about the end of the 19th century onwards was put a piece of animal protein in the middle of the plate and build out that's how it works um and now we're getting into sons of tapas which would be a great name for a band <laughs> it would. sons of tapas where everything's a small plate and because it's small plate you don't think in those terms because it may just be a pile of hispy cabbage to which something has been done you know glazed with gochujang or whatever um and so these smaller plates can be a bit less concerned about put something in the middle and build out. And I'm here for it. I think it's great. I'm going to give you a choice here, Joe. The, same, the amount of food you're getting is the same, but you're going to get it either presented on three small plates or one very big plate with its looking isolated in the middle. What's working for you? Three small plates. Are the sa- so it's the same food. Yeah, it's ha- and we're talking presentation here. So the, the amount of food you're getting is the same. This is the horse-shaped-sized duck question, isn't it? <laughs> not fucking, I'm not fucking bothered. Just give me the food. Yeah. In fact, fuck it. Give me all four plates. <laughs> I want both of them. What a ridiculous question. All right. I'm going to. I'm hungry again question. now. I'm going to order six small plates between yep. us. No. How do you feel about sharing? No. Do you not like sharing? No. What do you do when you go for a Chinese? I eat my food. What, you order one plate in, for no, you? I'll eat loads of dishes and I'll eat... But you don't expect it all to go out into the middle of the table and for everybody to take a bit? Well, fortunately, I usually go out to a Chinese with just my wife who's a vegetarian, so she stays well clear of the... You know the question you keep asking me about having friends? <laughs> 
think we're quite similar. <laughs> uh, struggling on the friend front as well. But yeah, I mean, even even with uh, your dear wife, do you not get a bunch of dishes and share? Or do you go? She'll have the the sweet and sour pork, and I'll have the crispy beef, and I we will, might share the rice. Well, I will share. I will. Sh- sh- she will share her <laughs> fish dishes mm. with me. And I can't share my meat dishes. It's working for you, isn't it? It works very well. Thank you. The issue comes when the kids, we go out for a meal with the kids and we buy a load of sharing stuff for everyone because kids don't eat, usually eat the whole meal. So we just get them, order a load of things and we put them on little plates. And then they start, no, I don't like that. I want yours, daddy. And I'm like, fucking hell. How do I tell the kid no without swearing or being inappropriate in front of other people? I said that it's only it's, it's only a concern about doing that in front of other people. <laughs> I mean, in, in, in the privacy of your own home, home they you know. will swear and be inappropriate at in front of your kids. Know. We all do. They yeah. know the bloody rules at home. Um, Michelin stars, how the fuck do they work? And are they actually, you spoke earlier about doing that week in France yeah. and doing the three stars and all that. Like, and maybe it's not what it's all cracked up to be. Well, the, the most important thing to say is that everybody likes prizes. We all like getting an award or a prize of some kind. I'm sure you both had gongs in your time for your brilliance of some kind. Mm. Tom, no? Oh, I'm no. sorry, mate. No. Well, I've had many. Ah. Um, but no, we all like awards and prizes. It's totally understandable that chefs want something to aim at. And the thing that they aim at, or a certain category of chef aims at, is the Michelin star. They are judged by anonymous people who travel around the country and nobody knows who they are. The problem I have with them is that they come from a very French aesthetic. And though they try to claim that they're now open to everything by giving, you know, Michelin stars to Chinese restaurants and Japanese restaurants, they are so slow on the uptake. And it seems too often to be the case that as you get up the star rankings from one to once you get to two and three, you are paying as much for the cost of the crystal and the decor and somebody to lead you to the toilet. I've been able to go to the loo by myself since I was four. But when you go to a Michelin three star, there's somebody there to take you. And it's like, oh, stop it. But the, the most brilliant thing about Michelin is the way they have managed to make a certain part of their audience own that star system. So when somebody says, well, I went to uh, such and such a restaurant and it's got one star, but I tell you, it should have two. And you go, well, Michelin are the people who hand out these stars, but you think you're now a Michelin inspector. Genius on the part of Michelin to make people think they understand this, uh, what is a two-star or a three-star. And I, I was well up for all of that for a very long time, and I was completely engaged with the Michelin thing, and I am rather less so now. I have a final question for you, Jay. Um, imagine, if you will, the following scenario. We finish recording this podcast and we step outside to all receive the same alert on our phone, which is that massive asteroid has accelerated towards planet Earth. Yet you've still got time to go to one restaurant in the world, Jay, before this asteroid hits. And weirdly, the people who are working in the restaurant aren't shitting themselves or going to see their beloved family members. They are going to serve you in this restaurant. Which restaurant are you choosing? I would go to Jean-Georges in New York, which for all that I've said about, you know, man of the people, democratic eating, who cares about flummery? Funnily enough, I appear to have just chosen a Michelin three star <laughs> in New York in the depths of Manhattan just to eat there. There's one tiny thing they do there. It's a little piece of black bread spread with cold salted butter, then a sea urchin laid on that and a little ring of pickled jalapeno on top. It's only two mouthfuls and it is delightful. Three bells, Joe, for you? 
that's disrespectful. You know, yeah, it's four six world. bells. It's si- Sorry. Jay's only heard about the six bells <laughs> fucking five minutes ago. Disrespectful. Is it true, though? No. I would go all the way back to Miyazaki in Japan. Yeah. And I would order a plate of between five and eight slices of their Wagyu beef that you just put on this little barbecue in front of you. You sizzle, go, put it in your mouth and melts. Fuck me dead. It is absolutely unbelievable. I remember asking someone, why is this so nice? This is incredible. They're like, this much better than I said. It isn't meant to be Kobe beef. That's the best Thing. They wrote, no, no, Kobe shit. I went, it can't be. It's world-renowned. Everyone has it. There. Like, no, no. At the Oscars, they order specifically Miyazaki beef, and this is the one. And that's where I'd go. I'd go and fry it. Psh, psh, gone. Done. Tom, your turn. Just go to the, the uh, cereal cupboard, Jay, and grab a couple of handfuls. Yeah. Your cereal cupboard? Anyone's at that point. Yeah. Fuck you, Tom. <laughs> Fuck you very much. <laughs> Jay, thank you so much for coming in and Pleasure. talking to us and, and putting up with our nonsense for the last hour or so. It's been a joy in every way. You absolute fucking liar. Yeah, I know. Thank I know. You. But, you know, whoever expected a restaurant critic to actually be sincere. <laughs> fair, <laughs> fair. And uh, if you want to hear more about Jay, then type in uh, Out to Lunch, Jay Rayner, and your podcast app. Cheers. What I liked the most about Jay was he's a fantastic orator. Or, orator? 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 What one is it? Orator. Orator. The way he is with words. And also that I've got a much better understanding that he's not just there to go, this restaurant's shit, this rest- restaurant's great. It's more about, oh, actually, he's he's doing the whole experience of it all, the food, the drink, the atmosphere, and also being a restaurant writer, he's the whole actual writing's got to be quite entertaining or at least interesting so fancy it as a gig i think i think i could do it do you think i could do it i haven't got enough words in my what if i did it (gasps) you know where i'm going yes i do the i do the the chomping you do the writing and you just you're almost like a ghostwriter. have you heard of them like tell me more they 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 like write for people that want to write books do you know what why can't they write their own Right, okay, that's not quite how I thought it was planning <laughs> out. But anyway, you're my food critic ghostwriter. Let's let's do that. I'm literally going to have the crumbs from your table, am I? Yeah, unless it's meat, that, or just meat that I'm eating. Joe, I have very quickly hatched a cunning plan, which is that now Jay has been the guest on our podcast, that we see if we can get you as a guest on Jay's podcast, bring some of Jay's listeners to us. Strange listeners. Exchange Exchange listen- listenership. <gasps> Great idea. Exchange listenership. Perfect, Joe. And if people have forgotten already, Jay's podcast is called Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner. Who have we got next week? A drugs trafficker, Joe. A drugs trafficker? A drugs trafficker. I've never understood why it's called a drugs... drugs. <laughs> I've never you... understood why it's called a drugs... <laughs> but I've never understood it. <laughs> if you want to traffic drugs, you should probably clear it with Daisy. Goodbye. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.